You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. You don't have to work very hard to scare me with the notion of a future driven by artificial intelligence. Jobs lost to machine learning, creativity overtaken by algorithms, online spaces where I don't even know if I'm talking to a human or a robot. And then, of course, the inevitable rise of the machines and the beginning of the Terminator saga. Listen, when it comes to AI, our imagination can take us to some dark places. And we've seen so many legitimate concerns raised about this sector that it's easy to feel like all your fears have a basis in reality. But then, every once in a while, probably more often than we hear about, something good happens. Something that simply wouldn't have been possible without AI. Something that could legitimately save human lives, shorten timelines on critical research, could level the entire for-profit pharmaceutical playing field. Maybe it's okay to ask then, What if we get this one right? What if an AI research project led by Canadians could help us do the things that I just mentioned? What if artificial intelligence can help us kick cancer's ass? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alain Espourou-Guzik is a professor of chemistry and computer science at the University of Toronto. He is director of the Acceleration Consortium and part of a team that recently made a startling discovery. Hello, Alain. Hello. I know that uh, I'm kind of starting off with a complex ask here, but maybe can you outline for us the traditional drug discovery process when we're searching for cancer drugs and how long that usually takes? No problem. Many people don't realize how long this takes. If you want to think about from the initial discovery of a particular form of attack, you know, to try to treat cancer or a a particular disease, all the way down to where you can buy a pill, this can take a decade or even two decades. It's incredibly long. Uh, Of course, this has been shortened over time, but also the cost has increased over time dramatically. So another interesting fact is it takes about $2 billion in average to take a drug to market. So uh, how does the process go? Very briefly, at least in the context of what we're talking about, I'm going to simplify it a little bit uh, for the context of of what we're discussing today. Mm -hmm. Just imagine your body can express tons and tons and tons of proteins. Okay, We're talking about of the order of of, of hundreds of of thousands. Those proteins are involved in many different uh, aspects of your body. They regulate your sugar levels or they they might go off track and generate a cancer, right? Usually it's when they are overexpressed in some way or another that that your body starts doing something weird. The the simplest possible type of drugs, what they do is they will bind to one of those proteins and stop it from doing something. Hmm. This is a very simplified way of thinking about it. So to to find a drug, you need to find out, you know, what is a particular set of protein or proteins that are off whack? Then what is the place in them that you could bind a small molecule? Then you have to design a small molecule then you have to find out if the molecule is toxic or not. Ideally, first with cells, then you do it to, with animals, and then you eventually go to clinical trials and test it in humans. And it's all that entire process that can take a decade, say. 
And we're talking today because you and your team uh, decided to try to change that process using artificial intelligence. What was the inspiration behind that? And maybe just outline, like, what did you set out to do? Well, I, I am a pioneer of the use of artificial intelligence for chemistry and material science. So early on, when we started working on this around 2012 or so, people thought, oh my God, artificial intelligence is like uh, out there. What are you going to do with it? And turns out in many contexts, including materials, but also drugs, we have found that artificial intelligence can be employed for several of the design steps to accelerate them. Needless to say, uh, what we set out to do is to continue showing that AI is very powerful at making discoveries that could lead to therapeutics or new materials faster than if you didn't use AI. You mentioned that you've been doing this for a long time now. The technology, the artificial intelligence technology that you use to make this discovery, how new is this? Would this have been possible uh, last year in 2019, back in 2012? Like, how quickly are things changing? Well, let's let's just begin uh, with a little bit of a little bit more detail. So, one of the tools that we employed for this project is called AlphaFold. It's just only about a few months old, and AlphaFold, what it does. It's a technology that allows us to predict the folded nature of a protein without knowing it experimentally. Okay, so usually the story is of all the 100,000 or so proteins you have around floating in your body, only a certain percentage of them we have already been able to make a crystal of. And when you have a crystal of it, you can find out what are all the atoms. What AlphaFold, uh, which is a technology developed by DeepMind, allowed you to do is to make very accurate predictions of the of those that have not been crystallized. So that's an AI tool that just came out this year. But the AI tool that we developed independently in my group and also in Silicon Medicine, and in this paper we collaborate together, is something called generative design for drugs candidates. So what we use is AI to dream up, literally, like the same way now AI is dreaming up pictures or dreaming up voice clips or dreaming up audio, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can use AI to dream up what would be good candidates to bind to a protein. So what is super sexy about this paper is that we took for the first time that alpha fold technology together with our proven old, and by all the mean five years old, right. technology to, to bind to a drug together by using both of them, then we were able to do uh, something novel. So what type of disease or cancer did you get to work on? And I feel like I'm going to say this a few times during the course of our interview, but without being too complex, what did you do? Yes, let's be simpler. Uh, Let's try to make it simpler. There's uh, liver cancer. Okay, liver cancer kills a lot of people. It's one of the worst cancers out there, right? So we also use AI, actually, to figure out by reading all the past literature and looking at which proteins are out of whack on different patients, what would be a good protein to target? In this case, it's a, it's, a, it's a type of protein called kinase. It's called CDK20 that was selected by the process. And we wanted to select one that was not known to be crystallized because we wanted to prove that AlphaFold was able to predict that structure and then we were able to bind something to it. It's almost like doing a double stunt, right? The first stunt is to see if you can predict the right structure, but the second stunt will be, can I actually bind a, a, a drug to it? So, mm. so we picked liver cancer as an example. And in that example, we found this protein that has not been crystallized before. 
And we said, let's go for it. When you say go for it, what happens next? It gets very exciting. Okay. So we said, okay, liver cancer, go for it. AI tells us, tells, told us, you know, by, by doing all this data mining and unsupervised learning. Okay. Look, um, CDK 20 is like a good potential target. So then a human gets involved. We say, okay, sure. Let's continue. Right. And then we use another AI tool to find out, uh, what is the potential shape of CDK 20. And then we said, okay, let's go, continue. Now, with that potential shape, now let's use our generative AI, which again is, imagine it really, a, co- a computer that has seen examples of how drugs look like, and it has some idea of how to draw a drug that has never been drawn before. Hmm. Uh, and it's actually suggesting them to you, and then we have other software that says, no, this looks crappy, no, this looks good, this looks toxic, this doesn't look toxic. Wow. And the computer keeps dreaming. Maybe this one, maybe that one. And eventually we find what place in the protein most likely will be able to bind. And then we test it like a lock and a key. We're trying to find the key that opens the door and we generate a bunch of keys. And eventually one will try, kind of open the door in the computer. And, and then we say, oh, wow, maybe maybe we should try this on a rat, for example. That's kind of you know very simplified, simplified way of what we're doing. So that process that you just described for me, uh-huh. how long did it take you using those tools and how long would it have taken without them? Yes. So this process in general is called lead discovery. Just to be very clear, that means we discovered a potential candidate to become a drug, right? Right. This, this still has to go all the way down clinical trials and other things, and a lot of investment will need to be done. But that particular process originally will take, say, six months to a year, maybe a couple of years. And in our case, we were able to do all of that in 30 days. Wow. So what happens to the potential drug that you've discovered now? Are you going to move on to the rest of the process, clinical trials, et cetera? That's, that's a complicated question in the sense that if we were to want to do that, we will not be publishing this paper <laughs> because I don't work with the company, but I, I collaborate with them and I, I'm one of the scientific advisors, this company in Silico. They will probably not have liked to publish this because they will have liked to continue developing it and then submit a patent and, right. and then kind of like go ahead and, and develop it. But a lot of these studies, including this one and many that my group are working on as well, are done at this level where you say, let me show that technology works. Let me show a potential lead candidate and let's give it away to the public. And that means another company can take this information and further refine it. And But now it's kind of more like an open process. And of course, drugs have been developed out of this open process. But in some sense, it's just kind of like giving out to others and then seeing if others want to continue this process. It might inspire further research and, and some people might take our lead and then continue making a better lead and then they decide to make it a clinical development program. And maybe a drug will come out of this. We, we, we will see. So leaving this drug aside for now then. Sure. Now that this technology exists and, you know, you've published a paper and the world has seen it, what does this mean in the big picture for the drug discovery process? And, you know, let's be real, there's billions of dollars at stake here, as well as all the lives we're already talking about. So I told you that there's an AI that we invented kind of in parallel to in silico about five years ago, this generative design. We applied it to chemistry. It was invented by the computer scientists before. But... Generative design for chemistry, you know, we were the first ones to actually start working on that together with in silico and maybe a couple others in, within a few months. And uh, that tool is already employed by most of the major pharma companies. They are 
using it to generate potential ideas. It's almost like a digital brainstormer or a digital designer kind of helper. This new tool by AlphaFold just had come out and people were very excited about it because now we have access to many, many proteins that were not known. So now pharma companies or scientists can go to that database and use it for very quickly finding out new, new potential structures. That's what we did. Okay, we said, let's be the first ones in the world that co- combine the two. This is what this paper is about. Yeah. And uh, basically, I guess it's a milestone. It tells people, look, this is the way to go. Now we have a bunch of new potential targets that were not available before, but by, by help of AlphaFold, we can go after those. Sometimes they are called dark targets because we don't know how they fold and then go after them. So in some sense, we're telling the pharma industry, watch out. Now there's a bunch of other things you can do uh, uh, besides just what you did before. Of course, they know that too, but we were first and fast to show that's the case. So how public is this technology? Who can use it? Is it proprietary? Because this is where I would I do want to talk a little bit about all the money at stake here that's behind developing these drugs. I mean, you mentioned yourself, uh, the company you partnered with would probably prefer to have kept that uh, potential drug for themselves. Yeah, so this is a cool thing because I am a professor and I like to say my research group is like an embassy, Huh? right? If you go to an embassy and you say something, everybody listens, right? My mission is to publish. So all the codes I write are open source. Okay. Everything I publish has open data sets, practically everything. Sometimes I have to withhold the data set for one reason or another. There's, there's always like these people that are in the embassies of the world, like my research group at the University of Toronto, and a consortium I built called the Acceleration Consortium also has this kind of nature of pre-competitive open research. And then there are the CIAs of the world, right? The intelligence agencies, the Mossad or the CIA or the KGB or whatever, right? Those are the companies. They will take one of these things and then take it secret for a while and then try to commercialize it. Hmm. They both exist. Coexist in nature. Usually these pharma companies also fund these open research projects because then they learn from the academics, right? So that's kind of like the ecosystem that is at stake. Open research funded by the public, funded by foundations and taxpayers, of course. And then there's closed research that is funded by venture capitalists and the sort, and private equity and those kinds of money sources. Can programs like this help level that playing field? Can it make it possible for a small team of, you know, university-backed or government-backed researchers to compete with the Pfizer's and Moderna's of the world? That's the plan. You are actually going to the right direction. I am really, really uh, excited that there was a a positive news about this. My friend John Chodera from the Sloan Kettering in New York, when COVID started, he started a, a project called the COVID Moonshot. That was exactly what we're talking about, a completely open, collaborative approach of several different scientists around the world to try to find a COVID therapeutic drug and take it to tests and everything. And they are moving really fast in that direction. So my group and I also worked on COVID for about three years. You know, nobody, no pharma company has worked with us. This is all academics, a few academic collaborators and us. Uh, We're about to release another potential drug therapeutic for COVID very soon. Wow. I mean, this will be a lead candidate too. It will still need to be developed. But but this is possible to do these things now, quote unquote, in your kitchen sink. So my last question, and this has all been fascinating, and thank you for explaining it so well, is what will you be looking for in terms of the next breakthrough? And, you know, in general, how long do you think, and I mean, I'm not asking you for a solid prediction here, but just to ballpark it, how long is it before we're using 
an artificial intelligence generated drug. Huh. That's interesting. There are already some drugs in clinical trials. Uh, I know for sure in Silico has a couple. So I'm pretty sure there is a drug for lung fibrosis already in clinical trials generated by Insilico. Once it passes clinical trials, maybe in a year or two or whatever it takes, that will be the first one you will be able to take if you unfortunately have that disease. But what's next that I find pretty exciting, and that's what my acceleration consortium is all about, is to combine all of this with uh, an automation system that can make the molecules that you are dreaming of and test them on the fly. Okay. Okay. Many people, including pharma and other academics, are working on this vision. But what that will allow us to do is to build what we like to call the self-driving laboratory in the context of pharma, which means a laboratory uses AI to generate a candidate, synthesize it, test it, probably in cells, make sure it works well or not, and continue doing that in a circle, kind of like self-driving itself Hmm. so that the human has less and less intervention. And eventually it will tell you, oh, this is a good one. Let's, Let's try to scale it up and put it on a rat. That's, that's what we're working on. This, this idea of the self-driving laboratory is a big effort that we are trying to lead here in Canada. And, and that's what, I, what I'm thinking all the time, the self-driving lab. Alain, thank you so much for this. It's been a fascinating conversation. I love your passion about it too. It's exciting. Thank you very much for having me in your show. It's a pleasure. Alain aspiru Gozik of the University of Toronto, director of the Acceleration Consortium. That was the big story, probably the most positive big story we've had in quite some time. You are welcome. I know it's not a Friday, but it's been a gloomy January, so we thought you deserved a break. You can talk to us at The Big Story FPN on Twitter by emailing hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by calling 416-935-5935. You can find this podcast wherever you get them, If you want it ad-free, you can subscribe to The Big Story Plus on Apple Podcasts. And if you just want your smart speaker to play it, you can say, hey, whatever you call it, play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.